Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting March 12th, 2008. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, we're going to talk about the current state and possible future of American science with the director of the Argonne National Laboratory, Robert Rosner. Plus, we'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. Astrophysicist Robert Rosner chaired the University of Chicago Department of Astronomy and Astrophysics. He later became chief scientist of the Argonne National Laboratory, and in 2005, he was named the lab's director. I spoke to him at the annual meeting of the American Association for the Advancement of Science in February. First, some edited comments he made over breakfast to an audience of journalists. The issue really is, from my perspective, whether or not there is, in fact, a connection between consistently supported research, especially basic research, and national prosperity, and the extent to which that's understood or not understood by the general public, the folks that actually pay the taxes that make us actually do the work, that allow us to do the work. And if one has a question about whether or not that connection, in fact, exists or not, whether it's understood, one only needs to look as far as the omnibus bill 2007, the one that was passed late in December, that to everyone's surprise uh, seemed to have contained lots of cuts to the basic science programs, especially the physical science programs in the United States. So I'd like to talk a bit about uh, what, are those, what are the issues, certainly from the point of view of a scientist and a lab director, and to think about how we connect research that we do today to the future of our nation decades from now. So first of all, a bit about Argonne. Argonne is the very first of the national laboratories. It started in 1943. It was an outgrowth of the Met Lab, which was, of course, part of the Manhattan Project uh, at the University of Chicago. Uh, CP1, the very first uh, reactor ever built, nuclear reactor, was built in Ch- uh, at the University of Chicago. And when time came to build the second one, uh, the university decided that maybe it's not such a good idea to keep doing this in the midst of a large metropolitan area. So the idea was to move out to the uh, to the prairie about 25 miles southwest of Chicago, uh, and that's where Argonne was established. A key aim of our laboratory is to understand fundamental properties of matter at the molecular, atomic, and nuclear scales, and to then put that understanding uh, to use. So if you look at our user facilities... We have the advanced photon source. It's the brightest X-ray source in the Western Hemisphere. We use it to study the structure of matter on the molecular and atomic scale. The Center for Nanoscale Materials and our microscopy facility, they do something similar, but also are in the business of actually making things, inventing new materials. Uh, the Argon Tandem uh, uh, Linac uh, Accelerator System, ATLAS, uh, which is a machine that's designed to study the structure of matter on nuclear scales to answer questions about what makes n- nuclei tick. <laughs> and finally, uh, the Argon Leadership Computing Facility, which is just starting to, uh, to be stood up, uh, it will be in the top five fastest, largest computers in the world by the time it's fully stood up in April of this year. Uh, and uh, it's really all about modeling nature. So what kinds of things come out of I think, uh, uh, an ensemble of facilities like this? Well, uh, Abbott uh, is in the business of de- developing drugs. Uh, they would like to speed up the development of drugs. They would like to do rational drug design. Uh, so they come to Argonne. They use a synchrotron to look at the structure of uh, things that can possibly hurt you in terms of health. And, for example, uh, uh, looking at the AIDS virus, 
you were able to come up with an anti-AIDS uh, drug that is today the best seller in the world, uh, Coletra. And the structural information to build Coletra was in fact garnered at the advanced photon source. One of the great issues uh, of uh, our energy problem is to increase the efficiency of everything that we do. Low friction is at the heart of it. And Argon has been at the forefront of developing low friction coatings, whether nanocrystal diamond or uh, near frictionless uh, carbon. Um, the lab combines work, basic work in catalysis and chemistry uh, with um, the ability to think about applications like fuel cells, uh, new generations of lithium ion, uh, ion batteries, to work with industry to basically uh, build high capacity storage devices. Um, we work on new technologies for storage. Uh, instead of charge-based uh, methods, for example, using the spin of, uh, of materials, uh, the, the field of spintronics. I showed you what we do. What problem do we face? I think it's uh, pretty well understood by folks that have actually looked at this issue that the lag between when you actually do invent something, you think about something and you think, this is really a neat idea, you do the basic work. And when you actually bring it to the marketplace and really has an impact, for example, in the economy, that lag is very long. It's decades long. But if you think about the development of railroads, railroads actually started uh, at the turn of the century, the 1790s, uh, 1810s, in that period. The very first railroads were built then. The very first steam locomotives were built at the end of that era. But certainly in the United States, the railroad industry didn't really come to the fore until at the earliest, the 1860s. Uh, airplanes, <clears throat> well, they've been around for uh, a century. But in terms of really impact, where everybody was flying, that really happened in the 1950s and 60s. The transistor, invented in 1947, the impact of the semiconductor revolution didn't really take off until the early 1960s. Computers, well, they've been around since the 1940s, ENIAC. But when did they really make an impact in your lives? Late 70s, early 80s. Internet, same thing. ARPANET, I remember as a as a, an undergraduate working on ARPANET ba back in Cambridge. It was uh, uh, you know, using a teletype. I didn't have a computer. The lag between ARPANET and the today's internet was something of the order again of about 20 years. And lasers, invented in 1960, really coming into industrial use, commonplace. The lag was about 30 years. So each of these cases, if you had asked. Uh, well, does it make sense to make these initial investments based on some future? People would look, would typically stare at you and thinking, well, this that's just science fiction. But the point is, it's not science fiction. Case after case after case, we have uh, examples of where an invention was made, and then when it finally came to fruition as a commercial product, where it really made a difference in everyday life, that lag was decades. Now, in a culture... Uh, when you go to Wall Street, everything is about quarterly results. Having the patience to wait for results that have a time scale of decades is really a lot to ask for. And the question really that I'd like to pose to you, how do you convince the body politic and the public that that lag, in fact, is real and that if you don't make the investments, for example, today, you have to be certain that 20, 30 years from now, we'll be lacking things that other folks that are making these investments, in fact, will have. The second challenge has to do with uh, the workforce uh, pipeline, and that's the pipeline here in the United States. Uh, when I look at my the typical class that I teach in physics, what I see is typically 
a sea of uh, white males. White males are not quite a vanishing breed in the United States, but they're certainly a decreasing part of the population. The folks that uh, are becoming more and more prominent, some have been, pr have been prominent all along, women. Uh, they're not present in the workforce, the scientific workforce, or well, more properly say they're tremendously underrepresented. This is true for African-Americans, it's true for Hispanics, and it's devastating. Because what I see is a small, small number of people that are born in the United States that actually sit in the classrooms that I teach. Now, part of it is, has to do, quite frankly, with an image issue. You know, if you th just think back on movies or television programs that you've seen in which scientists are portrayed, uh, how often are they portrayed as nerds, weirdos of some kind? Remember the movie Weird Science? Um, certainly socially uh, inept, perhaps even physically unattractive. Part two is the fact that if you, com if you ask yourself, um, take a, a very smart kid who is in college, just starting college, and wants to have a professional career, and has a lot of intellectual drive. And they ask themselves, now let's see, what am I going to be? Um, they typically do read the newspaper, and they do notice that for a given level of effort, I mean, they're going to go to college, they're going to go to graduate school, uh, they won't really be earning until they're in the late 20s at the earliest, and they look at the newspaper and they hear about the omnibus bill of 2007, and the fact that uh, Congress kind of forgot that it's important to support science. You have to ask yourself, what a kid like that would think about becoming a scientist, as opposed to, for example, a doctor. Maybe, you know, his or her parents were right, become a doctor or a lawyer, and not a scientist. Furthermore, if you look at the funding landscape in the United States, uh, the funding for science is an amazing roller coaster, highly unpredictable, precisely in a field in which the time scale on which you train someone to be actually productive in the field is measured in decades. So the variability in the funding landscape is completely inconsistent with the time scale that it takes to actually train somebody. Uh, the third uh, issue has to do with solving the second problem in a kind of a backwards way. You could say, well, let's give up on, uh, you know, we're never going to convince folks here in the United States. Um, we're going to uh, bring in the workforce uh, from outside the United States. Believe it or not, I think you know, do know this, to some extent this has been a de facto policy in the United States for a long time. The brain drain that the Europeans have been talking about is all about this. The fact the United States was a welcoming place for scientifically talented people to do their work here. I myself am someone like that. I was not born in the United States. I was born in Germany. And I had my education, my science education, and my science career here in the United States. One thing that is very noticeable within the last decade is actually a reversal of this brain drain. Part of it has to do with the fact that in many ways, We've stopped being very welcoming to foreign scientists. It has to do with visa policies, has to do with policies about foreign residency. And the second issue has to do with the fact that the advantages that we had during the 50s, 60s, 70s are slowly slipping away. The economic advantages and the disadvantages of the folks on the outside. Uh, I, I was in China, in Shanghai, and in Beijing uh, in May of last year, 
and I visited a number of the Chinese Academy Institutes in both, uh, both cities. And what was striking were two things. Number one, they built an, up an amazing scientific infrastructure in an amazingly short time. The second is, they are on a recruiting binge of Chinese scientists who are resident in the United States. Many of the leaders of the institutes in, the, uh, in these two cities are uh, folks that were trained in the United States and that basically have come home. This is also true in Europe. How do you explain all these things uh, to the folks that actually support us, that basically pay the freight for doing the research that do the science? I think it's true that in D.C., when I do show up and talk to House staffers, uh, Senate staffers, that typically uh, we are viewed as just an, another bunch of folks that are coming in to feed at the uh, public trough. You know, we just want our money, and, uh, and that's it. But I think the fundamental issue, the really deep issue that's not appreciated, is the fact that science, quite frankly, is not an entitlement program. It really is the basis of our prosperity, of who we are today and what we will be in the future, what our kids will be doing, what our grandkids will be doing, the kind of life that they will have, the kind of standard of living that they will have. It's not a luxury. So just to sum up, I think it's true that typically when I read science magazines, they're all about transmitting the intellectual content and the excitement of the field. And I have to admit, I resonate with that tremendously because I'm excited by science. I love doing science. But we all know that in the United States, the long traditions of anti-intellectualism, um, of uh, what, the, what the Times today also refer to uh, as anti-rationalism, the idea that there are really are no, no facts, it's all opinion, uh, the idea that scientists just play in their, uh, their sandbox and don't connect with anybody. And so I think the issue of finding that the public perception is that there is really uh, a disconnect between what scientists do and prosperity, that that really is a major issue. I was, just to give you a, a, a concrete example that just occurred a few weeks ago, I visited um, Johnson Control, a major uh, manufacturer in the United States, uh, their battery division. The battery division is in Milwaukee. And we were talking about their R&D program. And uh, what I was told was that uh, they do their battery program, much of their R&D is presently conducted in France. They would very much like to bring that R&D program back to the United States. They cannot. Why? They can't find the technical workforce to staff that R&D program in Milwaukee. That's devastating. That is devastating. But that's where we are. I hate to be so somber about these things, but but you know I think it is it's a these are serious issues, and I must say that uh, coming up with ideas for how to convince the public that there is an issue and that uh, there isn't much time left that we really need to get going. I mean, think of uh, you know what happens as companies like Johnson Control, which are multinational, realize more and more that if they want to progress, if they want to be on the leading edge on the commercial side, that they're going to have to look for the R&D workforce that they need outside the United States. So, you know, we haven't even begun to see the exodus, I think.
I have absolutely no problem with uh, science advancing uh, around the world. Science progress will occur somewhere. And the issue really is for the United States to ask, well, what kind of country do we want to live in? Do we want to live in a country that participates in these advances or not? That's a choice we can make. We could end up being a country that basically lives off a service economy, and then you know which way the economy will go, what the standard of living will be in 30, 40 years. Uh, if we want to be an industrially relevant country, then my, my argument is that to be industrially relevant, you have to also be scientifically relevant, because the science is what actually pushes you in the, uh, in the industrial realm. Without the science base, you do, cannot build uh, an uh, uh, industrial base. The United States will never again be a country that will be all-powerful in the commodity business, commodity industrial business. We will never again be the place where most of the steel in the world is being produced. Those places will be China, India, and so on. But what about the high-tech industry? What about things like the kinds of things that Johnson Control produces or that IBM produces? Are we willing to settle for the fact that IBM is spreading its, uh, its research labs to places like Zurich and other places, Beijing, Moscow? Do we want them to continue to stay here in the United States, Yorktown Heights in New York? They won't if they don't see the superb workforce because those folks don't hire just anybody. They hire and want the very best. And do we produce them or not? That's the question. I caught up with Dr. Rosner for a few minutes after his talk. Pleasure to talk to you, Steve. Can you give me some details about, you, you talked about the disaster, you called it, of the 2007 omnibus bill, what the consequences of this kind of political activity are for the country? I think that the issue boils down to something as simple as the following. For um, almost three years, we've had uh, a clearly expressed willingness in Washington to support science. And that willingness appeared in the form of, for example, the proposed budgets for the science agencies. What has been so devastating is that in uh, for the last three fiscal years, we've had continuing resolutions. That is, on October 1, uh, we've uh, been faced with budgets that are basically the same budget as the previous year. In one case, in fiscal year 06, uh, the continuing resolution lasted the entire year. In the present fiscal year, uh, we're finding that, now I'm coming to the omnibus bill, uh, that uh, not only uh, are we level-funded, but more than that, certain areas of science were actually targeted for real decreases. Uh, for example, in fusion science, uh, the ITER project, which where the United States is collaborating with the Europeans and Japan, the rest of the world, uh, was zeroed out. Uh, in high-energy physics, uh, the major projects for the future in high-energy physics uh, were, had their budgets cut severely. Right, we've heard about the, the troubles at Fermilab with exactly. their budgets. Precisely. And in our case, uh, we've, uh, in Argonne, we've seen cuts in areas as disparate as the light source. The light source has had budgetary imp impact. And we have a neutron scattering facility that basically had to be closed permanently because of the budget cuts. You also talked about how Sputnik had uh, invigorated American science because there, there was, you know, let me use the phrase, there is a clear and present danger that people uh, thought was there. What would it take to to get 
the the American public and uh, and our elected officials to get back into this idea of we we really have to just completely rev up our science infrastructure. I think that um, part of the issue is that when uh, when the the rallying cry is uh, a rallying cry that that's aimed at defense. For example, using nine eleven as an example, I think the difficulty there is that is fatigue on the part of the public. You can only appeal to an event like that for so long, and uh, as Rudy Giuliani found out, apparently, exactly. And um, so, so what one has to focus on, I think, are things that are are visceral, that are ever present in people's lives. Uh, certainly, World War II was that. Sputnik was that because people could actually see the you know, Russian satellites coursing over the United States. Uh, here, what we have to uh, have to talk about, I think, is the reality of Detroit uh, uh, looking at huge layoffs in the uh, uh, in the in their workforce, huge layoffs. Other industries, the steel industry, uh, the, uh, even the high tech industry, uh, suffering. And we have to ask ourselves. You know, is this just a hiccup, or is this a symptom of something that's much more profound, which is, in a way, the de-industrialization of the United States? That's the issue. And that, I think, can be a visceral issue for folks, because they all they need to do is look around themselves and see, where are the folks that are building new things? Uh, what will my kids be doing in 10, 15 years? What will my children's children be doing? Will they have decent jobs, or will they not? And I think that's the visceral question that we have to answer, and we have to be able to say that if we do make these investments that I've been talking about, if we do invest in our scientific infrastructure, that we can have a positive answer to these questions, what, what our kids and our kids' kids will be doing. But if we don't, we also will have an answer, but it's going to be a very depressing one. You talked about the challenges to getting young people involved in, a, in a, the early stages of a scientific career, the the commitment to a scientific education at the undergraduate and graduate school level. And some of those are the negative stereotypes of scientists and the perhaps non-competitive nature of salaries. But one thing you didn't mention that I think uh, is really important, it's hard. It's really hard to be a graduate student in the sciences. you got to work really hard. How do you motivate people to invest and let's face it, you might be in graduate school for six, seven years. Mm-hmm. You, if you get out in three or four with a PhD, you're a real star. Mm-hmm. How do you get people to, to, to commit to that kind of an effort? So I, the, I have a couple of answers to that. Uh, the first point is that, um, I think you underestimate the American drive for hard work. Uh, one very interesting statistic that, uh, was just bandied about just last week I heard about is the, uh, amount of hours spent by Americans working, this is the typical work week for Americans, compared to, say, Europeans. Yes, they work many more hours. It's Americans true. work much more. Absolutely. Okay. Um, if you look at the folks that, for example, go into the financial industry, um, the hours that they spend working are just enormous, and they're every bit as hardworking as a graduate student in physics or chemistry or mathematics. So I don't think the issue is a lack of willingness to work hard. I think the, the issue is 
What's the reward after you've done all this hard work? If you're in the financial industry, you know exactly what the reward will be. If you're a doctor, you go to medical school, work hard, you know exactly what your reward will be. You're pretty much guaranteed that there will be a reward. Uh, in science, that does not exist. That is the key point. You could be, you could work very hard for the six, seven years that you referred to, come out and find that, well, because of budget cutbacks, in fact, there are no jobs. That's the reality of it. You know, I don't want to leave the the <laughs> listeners with that because they're all going to run back so, and say, "Okay, I'm going. I am going to be an English major after all." So the point is that if you have passion for what you do, I think it is the case that uh, you can find a good job. And you know, most of us that have gone through science, we've gone through this roller coaster for years. When I came out of graduate school in the late 1970s, uh, in what I do, the field I may, I was in. Uh, which is mathematical physics, there are basically no jobs. And the fact of the matter is that I loved what I do enough that I lived through that period. The question just is, are there enough people like me? That is, that's really what it comes down to. For more on the Argonne National Lab, just go to www.anl.gov. And don't miss the little item there on the Rube Goldberg Hamburger Building Competition. That takes place on March 22nd at the Chicago Children's Museum. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories. Only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, cameras at red lights actually increase crashes and injuries. Story two, study subjects given placebos that cost more reported they were more effective than cheaper placebos. Story three, the video of Gnarls Barkley's new single called Run has been banned from MTV because it includes subliminal messages that are only visible on high-definition TV sets. And story four, U.S. military personnel at a base in Iraq were given treated but untested wastewater for two years for use in showers and shaving. Time's up. Story one is true. Cameras at red lights appear to be counterproductive and wind up causing more accidents than they discourage. That's according to a study out of the University of South Florida College of Public Health. For more, check out the March 12th episode of the Daily Siam podcast, 60 Second Science. Story two is true. Allegedly costlier placebos worked better in a study published in the March 5th Journal of the American Medical Association. MIT researchers gave light electric shocks to 82 volunteers. Half were then told they were getting a $2.50 pain-killing pill. The other half were told the price was $0.10 per pill. 85% of the subjects said the shock was less painful after getting the expensive pill. Only 61% said it was less painful with the cheap pill, neither of which really did anything. So from now on, I'm taking really expensive pills that don't do anything. And story four is true. U.S. military personnel at a base in Iraq were given untested wastewater for two years. The contractor KBR was in charge of the operation. The Pentagon's inspector general said that health problems may have resulted from the untested water supply, which went to showers and latrines. Spanish-American War, Upton Sinclair, anybody, anybody? All of which means that story three about the Gnarls Barkley video being banned from MTV because of subliminal messages is totally bogus.
Because what is true is that the video was banned after failing the Harding test, which is designed to protect viewers from having seizures. The video includes a strobe effect that, according to the test results, could have caused seizures in any epileptic viewers. Of course, the most powerful known TV seizure inducer is Mary Hart's voice. Oh, you may think that was just the plot of a Seinfeld episode, but a woman apparently really did get seizures from Hart's voice. The case was written up in the New England Journal of Medicine in 1991. The woman was given strict orders not to watch entertainment tonight. I inadvertently follow the same anti-seizure regimen. <laughs> Well, that's it for this edition of the weekly Siam podcast. You can write to us at podcast at siam.com and check out siam.com for the latest science news, videos, and blogs. For Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. Mm-hmm.